We're in a time of huge and rapid technological development, which will offer great opportunities to adapt the way we do things. Add to that major uncertainties arising from situations such as COVID. So predicting the future, or more to the point making the most of the future, needs expansive thought and engagement and research. The ARRB, formerly the Australian Road Research Board, has a vision statement to make the world's city smarter, cleaner, greener, safer, more efficient and productive through intelligent transport solutions. How do we do this in times of difficult funding and a media-driven emphasis on short-term opinion? It is appropriate, and it's a pleasure again, to speak to Michael Caltabiano, the CEO of ARRB. And after a few technical difficulties, I asked him about what the road authorities were seeking when they set up ARRB in 1960. Sought a central body of excellence to write the standards for the future, which in 1960 were about our new freeways, our new way of mobility. And if we fast forward to 2021... ARRB has now transformed itself into the National Transport Research Organisation, where we have a genuine remit across road, rail, ports and airports. And this is how we, you talk about trying to get some insight into the future. The future is about integrated mobility. It's not about roads, it's not about trains or light rail, it's not about ports and airports, it's about the integration of those journeys for freight and for passengers to really give economic uplift, but also to connect our communities. A move from supply-side approach from individual silos of government, road, rail, etc., to a more demand understanding? Absolutely. I couldn't have put it better. That is exactly the transformation that's happened in our community. And 50 years ago, we, would, we were absolutely in the hands of our state road agencies at the time, rolling out the new network. And that was their job, and they did it really efficiently and really well. We're now in an environment where we have a relatively mature network. There's still some missing links across the country, but relatively mature network. And the community are now demanding integration across the network modes, and they want different journeys. They want to be able to um, have a safe journey, have a smooth journey, have a connected journey. They want to embrace a future of connected and automated um, reality. They want to be able to walk out the front of their home and pick up a, a, a pod to take them down to the local shopping centre and not have to drive their car and park. There's lots of change on the way. That's an understanding of the diversity of trips too, isn't it? Uh, perhaps with the freeway type of act attitude, which is still a, a component, an important component, particularly in bypassing city centres and so on. But that attitude was often of the long distance. Uh, we are better now, and I think you're doing work on data that makes us, that helps us understand the complexity more. Uh, well, we have. We've got um, probably the largest infrastructure data set in the country. So we have all of the safety data collected. Um, across the nation for fatalities, serious injuries and minor injuries in every state and territory across the nation. We can actually and have the data to plot every single journey of every single vehicle on every single street in Australia at five-minute increments for the last five years. So we can tell you on 
even a local suburban street, how often people are using it, at what speed are they driving, when they get on the main road, are they congested, how does that affect their trip? And we also have, <coughs> excuse me, the nation's platform of data on the performance of the network, performance of our road system. So how strong are they? How many potholes have they got? Are they rough? Are they rutted? And we've got all of that across the state and Commonwealth networks in Australia. So we can actually now overlay these data sets and we can look at where are the safety incidents happening? Do they align with really rough sections and narrow sections of road? And we can inform our state transport agencies, as they've now become, on prioritising repairs of the network. What What's the highest priority for saving lives and delivering smoother, safer journeys? How do we connect communities? Where are the bottlenecks? How do we go about fixing those? So we are completely data-driven now, and we've got this massive data lake of transport, transport information to inform that journey. See, it's a, a case often that an accident is seen as a microsecond poor choice, yet it develops for reasons. An accident crash might be the better word. It develops for reasons, and understanding the broader inputs into that decision rather than just assuming it's the nut behind the wheel is a critical shift in public thinking? Yes, we, we, are, we are in the systems space. So we are using data now to look at the individual incident and relate that incident to what the system was doing at the time. And from that, we can then model, well, when that, when that system setting appears again, how do we stop it just before it gets to a stage where we are causing incidents and accidents? And there's some really good work being done by DOT in Victoria on freeway measurement and monitoring on the Monash in particular in Victoria, where they now have been able to model and predict when incidents and accidents are going to happen and use the ramp monitoring and speed monitoring on the motorway system to move things around to avoid a chaotic environment that happens on motorways when things, things occur. So we're getting really sophisticated now in the management of our networks. The truck industry is also getting very sophisticated in the collection of data. The truck and freight industry helps you to understand the complexity of the problem as well. That's actually helping us understand freight better rather than thinking it's just a truckie in a singlet driving a big nine-axle truck. The freight sector are really quite sophisticated. They've been having onboard telematics systems on our heavy freight running around Australia for probably the better part of 20 years now. I'll give you an example. If you're a transport operator out of Toowoomba and you're bringing a perishable freight down the east coast to Melbourne, for example, you want to know that you can employ your best driver who drives the smoothest way and goes on the on the road route that is most accessible for a truck of that size to go on a safe journey, minimum number of traffic lights, so that you're not having harsh events that will spoil the perishable product. They're now able to predict all of that, put their best drivers in, adopt the right routes, and deliver the fruit and vegetable to market in the best condition. That's how sophisticated they are. And they get the cost benefits of that, but we also get community benefits. We can get community benefits as well 
is it important to make sure that we work with industry to incorporate that? You can do research or, or, or run a business to make money to serve particular customers or serve the community. We really have to try and meld those together? Yes, we do. And that is what the next big phase or big opportunity that exists in our sector is is really high levels of engagement with the community because we need to understand their journeys and what's important to them. And we also need to take them on the journey. They don't have insight into the future of connected and automated vehicles. They don't have insight into you know, the $2.2 billion that the federal government has just allocated across the country to state and territory governments to fundamentally change the rural and regional road network so that we have wide centre lines, edge lines, sealed shoulders to really address the safety issues in rural and regional Australia. So the engagement of the community to show them what's happening, but to listen listen to the journeys that they want to go on, is part of this wonderful next integrated mobility future that we've we've entered this journey now. Science is struggling, I think, with its image around the world. You have a background, you have a, a, a science-based degree, engineering, uh, which... As you understand, I have a great deal of respect for, and and the concept though of, of pure research, it, it's it has been assumed to be academics waffling around on surreal, non-practical subjects. Can AWRB start a project based on pure research? Um, we we partner with our university colleagues across the country when it comes to pure research. We do some ourselves. We've got a very big and modern world-leading laboratory in, in Port Melbourne in Victoria in our head office, and, and it's doing um, nation and world-leading research on the incorporation of waste stream plastics into bitumens and asphalts, and we have completed all the new specifications across the country for the incorporation of chrome rubber into bitumens and asphalts, all circular economy outcomes, and we've also got um, in our laboratories, you know, the resetting and reconfiguring of equipment that is used in a unique way to measure our networks. I talked about measuring cracking and rutting and profile of our networks and strength. We are now the most advanced country in the world in the collection of that data at traffic speed. So when people see the big AWRB truck running down their highways, we're actually collecting a unique global data set on the performance of our networks. So when we partner with universities, and um, we've got a wonderful partnership with Monash on a smart pavements hub. So we're training 43 new PhD candidates in pavement engineering in partnership with Monash to bring them into the sector. We have never had that in Australia. In my business at ARB, we've got 40% of our staff are PhDs. Of those, almost all of them have attained their qualifications overseas. So we're starting, we're starting with our partnerships with universities to drive next generation thinking locally and then employing those next generation high quality doctorate candidates back into business. Having a PhD, again, I have great respect for, but it doesn't always translate into respect for it. Are you having to work more? I'm sorry, I didn't mean that in any negative sense. It's understanding, I think, how important clever thinking is about development because to some degrees, government departments and that have tended to outsource that recently. Are you doing much more work now directly with private industry? 
you briefly mentioned um, before what's, what's a post-COVID world look like. And it's been quite remarkable in 2021 as we've come coming out of a COVID world. There's been really significant change in the private and public sector engagement of our business, the National Transport Research Organisation, to do new work. We are really ramped up to the maximum capacity at the moment, working with the private sector to solve some unique problems, particularly in the rail sector. We are working like never before with our colleagues in state transport agencies to really grasp what the future is and develop assurance models for those agencies to assure them that the work that's been done on the network is not only being constructed properly, but will last the test of time and has the right asset management strategies in place. These are new concepts and new bits of work that we're doing right across the nation. And it's, you know, the tidal wave has broken and, and I think it's been driven by the investment from state and Commonwealth governments that is now, you know, the rubber has now hit the road. The planning and design is finished and the construction is now underway. And it's just a marvellous time. Do we give enough credit to private industry too for having a long-term vision, I think, of sustainability, that there are private companies now and, and those with overseas head offices that having that are setting very strong requirements for sustainability. Have you seen in the private industry an enhancement, a a development of that particular type of thinking? Most definitely. And it's coming through in partnership with government to change the standards. And and the private sector is pushing government to say, well, if you you set the standard, we want 25 or 30, 40% recycled product in our road environment, we can deliver it for you. So there's this crossover that's happening where the private sector has now developed products, processes, skill sets to deliver much higher levels of sustainability in their construction processes that are requiring government to actually codify that in a policy so that they compete on a, they can compete on a level playing field. So they're definite, the, the products and processes, the training of people has been completed. It's now time for implementation, and that's the great drive and the excitement that we see across the infrastructure sector um, across Australia right now. I went to a function at Sydney Local Council last night, and there was much talk about bringing in sustainability to various organisations, and some large buildings in the city have reduced their carbon footprint, but they've also made money out of doing it. Is there less of a just ideological driven here, but a more practical reality, both for the benefit of the community, but also the reality is it's good for the business as well. Absolutely right. And we're now in a in a position where we can actually model it and define it. So we've completed a piece of work fairly recently and within the last 12 months that now allows us for innovative road solutions to actually value in a whole-of-life value um, both the capital dollars up front and the long-term maintenance costs with a greenhouse gas emissions overlay. So, for example, if you're using warm-mixed asphalt, which is asphalt produced at about 120, 130 degrees instead of 170, 180 degrees, and you incorporate recycled asphalt as part of that warm-mix process, you can save 36 
tonnes of carbon emission per lane kilometre of production. I mean, it's, they're huge numbers. And it's cheaper to produce because it's less energy. It's cheaper to produce because you're using more recycled product in it. And it's better for the environment. So those offerings from the private sector to government are available today. And the government's now um, using the National Transport Research Organization, our business, to write the standards to enable them to have the confidence to use these new and innovative products. It seems to me that the notion of sustainability, which has often been seen as a left versus right political issue, and we and some have taken the attitude that we may have to begrudgingly accept the sustainability. Perhaps, though, there's much more joy in accepting that because, as you say, we're, it's costing less and so on. There's the, the, it's an abundance to embrace, not just a burden to have to endure. All of that is absolutely true, and governments at state and commonwealth level, and, and we work with both, are right across it. Now, the Federal Environment Minister and her Assistant Minister, Minister Evans in, in Queensland, we've had a lot to deal with in terms of allowing them to understand the journey and then for them to support the journey. And they are right across it. They've provided funding through the Austroads mechanism to, to drive new specifications nationally. And every state's transport agency in the country has embraced a new generation of sustainability in all of the works that they do. And it starts at design phase through into construction and then beyond into maintenance. So we, we have partnered right across the sector to deliver the next generation of sustainability. And your listeners may not be aware that every single road in Australia is 100% recyclable today. Every single road is 100% recyclable. So, you know, I like to think of our road network as, as the quarries of the future. The, the taxpayers and ratepayers across Australia have already paid for it. And we can now use it and reuse it again and again because we have the technology and the smarts in our sector to do that. The media coverage of budgets is usually about the quantity of the spend. Is part of your role to try and make sure that there is a quality of the outcomes, that, that, that there's some allocation of money, not just to build some big projects which make headlines, but to do the analysis and research for understanding what the best solutions might be. Is that part of your talk about engaging with the, both the politicians and the public? Now you've hit the nail on the head for our next, our next journey, this part of this integrated mobility journey, is we must audit. We must understand when we put $2.2 billion into new safe system outcomes in rural and regional Australia, it's not good enough to just go and... Um, as you say, cut the ribbon on all of those new pieces of work. We must go back every year. We must monitor how many accidents and incidents have occurred on these new pieces of work. We must learn from the system changes and continually improve. That is exactly the next journey that I've set this business up, um, you know, our National Transport Research Organization for Australia. That is the journey we're going on so that we can learn from this wonderful investment nationally, over $100 billion in the next 10 years, so that we can learn from that, and then as we enter the next phase, which will be all about maintenance, um, all about maintaining quality and standards, we've learnt during the construction process what the quality has been like, how have we managed ourselves, and what has been the impact. 
how do we measure that? How do we monitor it? How do we audit it? And our state agencies are all over this. They're, they're now asking us to develop assurance models so that they can actually do predictive modeling of performance. It's a really exciting time. It needs a maturity to accept an error. No, I don't mean that in any negative sense. Well, not so much an error, but, well, we could have done it even a better way. Let's, let me put it in the positive. Uh, we're not really in a, in a public debate sort of environment that allows us to chew the fat a bit and say, well, you know, that was good, that wasn't, this is how, how we progress. If we, if we say we want to do something better, that doesn't condemn our past so much. Yes. And, it, and that's, that's a maturing of, of the national conversation. And, you know, you play a very significant role in that through these podcasts. And, but the, but the, the live media, the daily media grind on TV does have to change its, messaging around um, what's acceptable. Failure is not a bad thing. Mm. You only learn from failures. If everything you've got everything right all the time, you're being way too conservative. You're not pushing the boundaries. And as you correctly said, we're in a scientific world. We learn things through failure as much as we learn things through success. In fact, failure probably teaches more. So we, we can't be risk-averse as we enter this, this period. We've got to try things. We've got to do new things. And the New South Wales government, you know, let me give you an example on the on the Newell Highway. They've gone down the path of introducing bitumen-treated bases on the Newell Highway, so bitumen-treated road structures, which are far more resilient, moisture-resistant, because the Newell closed about eight to nine years ago, close to 72 days after a flood event. We cannot allow the major arteries of Australia to close for that period of time. The economic disruption is enormous. So great credit to them. They've, they've adopted a unique design approach. We did all of the design analysis for them and, and prepared the, the relationships for fatigue and strength for them. And then they've gone to market, and it's, it's actually being laid right now. It's a bitumen-treated basis on a major national highway in Australia because the state wanted to solve the problem, solve it in a sustainable way, and solve it using next-generation thought and technology. So that allowed the state to set a clearer specification of how something was done, of which private industry would then see that as what they have to do and, and compete to do it efficiently. That's right. And it was a new product. So it's a new product for the market. And they took the risk. They understood the journey. And it's being, it, it, as it's been rolled out, it's just a fantastic outcome because the, the people of New South Wales, the people of Australia who are using the new highway, get a, a more resilient part of the network. So the next flood event that goes over the road and then and then drains away when the, when the rain stops, they can get back onto the road straight away. So those learnings, those understandings and taking that risk has enormous benefits. You've engaged in a range of things and it's been written independently that since you've arrived, AWRB has done much more research it embraces things like connected vehicles as well, doesn't it? It's not just the, the hard infrastructure. It's also the processes, the digital processes, that help us understand and cope with and, and deal with and, and interact with the situation. Oh, you're absolutely right. So we, we, we began this digital journey about four years ago um, after I took the helm of um, AWRB. And we are now in a position, I can actually announce for you today, 
that we have acquired Australia's first probe vehicle. So we've partnered with Volvo and we have just acquired an XC90 R-Design hybrid Volvo. So it's the smartest car in in what that is available to everybody in the in the country today. And on that car, we're fitting out three lidars, suite of cameras, um, phone technology, roughness meters, retro reflectivity to to measure white lines, and it will be the vehicle that determines the three D profile of our typical road network. And it's the first time we've got a vehicle of its kind travelling the highways of Australia actually defining the 3D envelope within which we, our digital vehicles, so the vehicles that are coming with LiDAR embedded in them next year, they're coming next year to Australia, will actually be able to drive through a digital road environment. So this is unique. So Europe have a, a European colleagues, and, and the beauty of ARB is we're one of seven global research partners, and we're our partners in England and Germany, France, Sweden, China and the United States are all moving down this path, and the Europeans are ahead of us. Um, We will catch up by the end of this year. Um, So they have defined the digital type set for 20 different road types through Europe by doing exactly what we'll be doing in Australia. So what ARB will be doing for the country is defining the digital road type so that your vehicle with all the sensors, you'll be able to manufacturers, we're able to go, well, will our vehicle work in these digital road types? And it allows them then to plug and play their vehicles for Australian conditions. So it's a really exciting space, and we wouldn't have been in this space unless we had have invested over the last four years in the intellect in the business. We've got some fantastic people in our business who sit on global standards committees for connected and automated futures, the ISO standards committees and bring the knowledge back to us to allow us to then get on with um, doing this probe vehicle up and creating the digital footprint for Australia. Standards is often seen as bureaucratic niceties in many ways, yet I think you've linked it to revolutionary discoveries and processes. So it's been a great concern in many engineering areas that by cutting down on people having time in government departments to do things like look out for mistakes or problems developing. I think it's simple things like line marking, signposting, uh, that it has perhaps moved to a place where you wait until something goes wrong and then you fix it. But this technology will allow you to assess that in a very thorough way while other things are happening as well. Is that the use of technology in a, in a positive manner, rather than just dwelling on the fact that we're no longer doing it as the way we've normally done it. It's definitely the former, and and our transport agencies across Australia are really ramping up their engagement in this space, looking at real-time digital feed on road performance. And we've just brought into Australia um, for the Queensland's Department of Transport and Main Roads, who are one of the most uh, innovative in the country as a as an agency, a, a what's called a reflectometer. We've called it iLine, the intelligent line assessment device. So we we bought two of these devices out of Europe and we bolted them on the back of two four wheel drives and we can run the road network and we have done this in Queensland at 100 kilometres an hour. So there's no you know, it's at traffic speed 
So there's no closing of lanes. And what these devices do is they pick up the reflectivity of your edge line and centre line concurrently. They count the cat size as well so that you can then input that data, that level of reflectivity into your asset management system so that the old days, current days in some places around Australia, of, well, we have to realign mark every six years because traditionally that's what's always happened. We can now actually do 20, 30,000 kilometres a year in, in a state, do the whole state network for them really quickly and actually provide a, a deterioration curve because once we know what the actual value is, we can then predict where it's going to be. So line marking is usually climate dependent. So if you're in rural and regional Australia um, and you're not subjected to a lot of a lot of rainfall and a lot of traffic, your lines may well last twice as long as they do in urban Australia or vice versa, you know, and it's going to be really interesting to see. But the fact that they're now pursuing these digital data sets to better inform their maintenance journey means that for the taxpayers, you know, Queensland are going to be doing the right treatment at the right time for the right price. And it fundamentally changes. That Using this data fundamentally changes the way in which people, our agencies on behalf of the taxpayers, spend their money. They can spend it much more efficiently solving the problems that they really need to solve. So the move to a digital understanding of the network and a digital performance of the network is happening in real time right now in every state in Australia. And you can be absolutely sure your road agencies and transport agencies are focused on how do we get data sets to tell us if some electricity companies trenched the road and we now can detect because we've got 20 buses with telematics on the buses that go ba-dump, ba-dump when they cross over, feeds back lifetime, we've got a problem. We've got to go and fix it. We're, our safe journey analytics tell us we've got a problem. That stuff is live now, and it's real, and it's inputting it's inputting that data into their asset systems right now. See, a couple of years ago, they got involved where the reflectivity of the lines was, and I think still is a function of the beads that are put into it, but which you can't readily see. But to measure it re- consistently is a real clear parameter, an audit, your word you used before, of whether that line has been put down properly and, a, and includes all the materials that were necessary to make it work and work over a long period of time. So this could well be a, a strong part of auditing as well? Oh, most definitely. And it also now, now that we've got the technology to actually do this retroreflectivity assessment at traffic speed, because ultimately retroreflectivity should be done in an environment that reflects what the drivers see, because that's what matters. Mm. And we're now able to do that at traffic speed, 100 kilometres an hour. And what our We've got some brilliant engineers in our Brisbane office who are experts in this field who have actually now worked with the private sector to change the bead configuration, the bead size and the bead mix, these little glass beads that get dropped into the paint lines, which are, in fact, the things that give that reflectivity, to to increase your reflectivity by 30%. So now that we can measure, we can measure what people see, we've now been able to innovate in partnership with the private sector to give higher quality lines for the same price. And so it has opened up a whole new field of endeavour, a whole new set of smarts, which ultimately lead to safer roads. 
There's a message to the public there because it's often argued that it's the colour of the line where in reality it's the number of beads to make sure that you put in there, which means, among other things, the line can still be have a, a reflectivity that works in the wet as well. So that there's a nice message of being able to communicate that there's some solid science behind this, not just the colour of the lines. That's absolutely true, and and that is core business for us. And I'll give a shout out to David Melling in our Brisbane office. He is the uh, the guy who's been working on this for many years, and um, he's just brilliant. I mean, he, there's just no other word for it. He's just done a magnificent job. Are we getting enough funding and enough visibility of that funding for this type of research? Uh, we can always do more. <laughs> that's a, that's the simple yeah. that's the simple answer. I mean the the more money we have, um, the more outcomes we produce. Arben, in our role as the National Transport Organisation, will constantly seek to partner with the government and the private sector to do things that those agencies consider important. Now, we've got our ear to the ground on what, where the future is. As I said, we're connected globally and we're, we're constantly in, in conversation through our partnerships to, to drive new directions and drive new investment. Because, you know, as a not-for-profit entity, it's, it's our duty to actually provide a public good in what we do. And that public good for us means enabling our future transport integrated mobility sector to be smarter, better and more efficient. It's linking to perhaps areas that may not have been the... Before, I, I think, for example, just the car manufacturers who are now building cars that collect a lot of data, be it about bumps on the road or, or that. It's it opening up new partnerships? Uh, it is. And our probe vehicle, our Volvo probe vehicle and our partnership with Volvo, um, we will get all of the car data. So we will get a little plug-in that gives us all of the data that would ordinarily be captured by the car and go back to Volvo, we will get all of that data. So what is the braking system doing? What is, you know, how do the, how do the vehicle dynamics work? When do the windscreen wipers go on? Where are you positioning in the, in the lane? So it, it detects steering wheel movements. All of that data set we will now get a feed on. And the beauty of that is we can then relate that to the other bolt on technologies we've put on the vehicle. So in, the probe vehicle, we will ultimately be able to develop a relationship between the infrastructure and how the vehicle responds to the infrastructure. A super important new set of knowledge. And you're right in that vehicle manufacturers are moving on, and I use Volvo as an example, but it applies across the fleet. Volvo in 2022, all of their vehicles produced, every single one in the range, will have full driverless capacity. So you'll be able to push a button and say, take me home, and the vehicle will take you home. You don't have to touch a thing. Now, clearly in Australia, that will be disabled because we do not have the regulations. We do not have the infrastructure to support those journeys. But in Europe, where they do have the infrastructure and the regulations, in the United States, where they have the infrastructure and the regulations, they'll be able to push a button if you buy a new Volvo in 2022 and say, take me home, and it will. So we've got a bit of catch-up to do. And, and it's an intellectual catch-up as much as a physical catch-up. The private sector has been moving on this journey for a decade now, and we, have, we are now in a lag position, and we have to get back on top of it. And the reason we have to, not just for the fun of the technology, the reason we have to is because the technology saves lives. It is a safer 
environment. Machine learning and, and machine capability much safer than human human driving. So that is the journey. It's a safer journey through technology. Our notion of autonomous driving is a very clever car, but you're clearly saying it depends on infrastructure, line marking and, and consistency throughout that. So it's got to be a partnership to make it work. That's absolutely right. And, and our signs, the consistency of signs, it would be no surprise to yourself and your listeners that there are different signs in different states, different sizes, um, different meanings. Um, we have to get some normality because you know we drive across state borders, believe it or not. White lines are really important, um, super important for the next generation of level three autonomy. Uh, and when, when we move to level four autonomy, you know the, the digital mapping of our network becomes the next big journey. So right now, we're talking to agencies about future-proofing this massive investment over the next decade, thinking through where are we going to be in 10 years' time with a different fuel source, whether it be... Mm electric or hydrogen, it's going to be a different fuel source. What does that mean for emissions? So tunnel technology, we're building lots of tunnels across Australia at the moment. The ventilation systems in those tunnels cost hundreds of millions of dollars. If you've got a zero emission fleet, you don't need a ventilation system. You only need it for emergency. You don't need it day to day. But why would you spend hundreds of millions? So how do we make those ventilation systems bolt on, bolt off? So yes, you do need them for the next 15, 20 years as we move into a different fuel source, but then we need to rip them off, and then we need to create a drone corridor through those tunnels. We need to think much more imaginatively about our future-proofing of this massive investment that's going on across Australia. I want to talk forever, well, listen forever here, Michael. That's very good. I better draw it to a close, but uh, I'm sure that in the future we can flesh out some of these in even more detail uh, for your time now. I, I do appreciate it greatly. It's been lovely having a chat and um, available anytime. I, I really enjoy our conversations and, and you know, your, your listeners, I do get feedback from them when they listen to the podcast um, and want to know more information. So you've got a great audience, uh, a really switched on audience, and it's through this communication that we will all learn together. More power to that, and uh, I'm not trying to do a one-off everything, you know, here's the solution type of thing. It's a lovely evolution and a discussion and an auditing and, and so on. Michael, thanks again. I, I do appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Bye for now. And that's Michael Caltabiana, who is the CEO of the ARRB, formerly the Australian Road Research Board, but as we've heard, is embracing the more holistic approach to transport which is so fundamental to understanding what we need and what we do and how we then can develop systems that allow that to be both safe and efficient.